He's the man in the back of the room. Y con la voz de Dios. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, CEOs where to go, and stars when to shine. But as he likes to point out, Who cares? I care. It's true, she cares. And so does he. He's entertainment and production agency owner and meeting and event master, Anthony Bellotta. She's his Agent 99, and you're about to be Bellottified. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Bolotified, the one and only podcast about events, entertainment, and engagement. I'm Anthony Bolotta, and I'm here every week, as I am, with the delicious, always optimistic Alexia Cristina Postelidis. Opa! Alimera. How are you this afternoon? Morning. I, I'm, yeah, it is, yeah, it's morning still. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm all right. You know, it's uh, it's been kind of an interesting week so far, uh, and yeah. uh, we're just plugging through, just plugging okay. through. Yes. Okay. Sometimes that's what we can do. That's all <laughs> we can do, you know, sort of keep your eyes focused forward and just keep moving. Keep moving and keep changing and keep growing. Exactly. Speaking exactly. of which, I did a thing. What? I did a thing. Well, you know, I have a birthday coming up um, and it's a scary one. Yes, 25, 25 is hard, man. It's hard. Uh, um, <laughs> the worst. It's the worst. It's the worst. So my daughter for my upcoming birthday bought me a present and she and I went, well, I have two, The but the first we did last Friday um, and we went and we got matching tattoos. No. Yes. Oh, you won't you're really an woman. I am. I am a gangsta. Gangsta. Yes, with the treble clef S and the word smile for the song. Oh, so you're a musical gangsta. Yes, yes. I'm a musical wow. gangsta. It was Great done talent. to honor my dad. Uh, the my father's song. Our, our song was Smile. Written um, by? Charlie Chaplin. That's right. That's right. And uh, so uh, Illy one day said, we should get matching tattoos, Mom. Why don't we get Smile? Which, come on, when your 18-year-old daughter wants to do something, not only to honor you, but to honor her papuli that she never even met. Right? It is. It's it. I I better stop because I will start to cry. All right, so just confirm then, you didn't put it on your tushy. I didn't. It's on my right arm on the inside. Can and we, Can we see it? Even, even though our audience, oh, wow. Yeah. So I have to have a little bit of fix here because unfortunately when you're a little bit older and the skin is a little bit thinner, the tattoo ink just can have a reaction. So no big deal. I'm going to go add a little heart or something to it. Maybe a tulip, which was my favorite flower because of my dad. We'll figure so, something out. So this is how it starts. <laughs> <laughs> Before you know it, you got an arm sleeve going. I got a whole sleeve going. Oh, you know, I would not have the guts. Um, as Illy was in the chair, and this is her, I think, fourth tattoo, right? She has some really, really pretty ones on this, her, her left arm. And um, she, God, this one doesn't even hurt at all. I don't even feel it. I was numbed 
for 45 minutes going into it. And I'm like, so no, no, there, there won't be a whole lot more going on there. It, it was painful is what you're it saying. Was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't childbirth painful, but it was, but it hurt. I don't think if it was childbirth painful, many men would have tattoos. <laughs> oh, that's Can't imagine a, that being the case. Good point. I hadn't even thought, oh, I'm going to bring that up to the tattoo artist. She'll get a kick out of that. How long did it hurt? Um, it, no, the whole thing didn't hurt. It was just certain areas when she had to do a long, um, you know, a longer line. And then about when she was done about a half hour for maybe an hour, it felt like road rash and then it was done. That's it. Yeah. Well, the after was nothing. Oh, did you have to Vaseline it up? Um, she immediately puts a cover on it that stayed on for about three days. And so I just put a little, um, lotion on it twice a day and no scrubbing when it itches because it's healing and I forget and I scratch it and then I get paranoid but you know that's it it's minor it's easy now what happened with the ink in that one spot did it it didn't take or no it took what happens if your skin is a little thinner and that's one of the downsides of being Greek is that you can have thinner skin the Mediterranean skin can be thinner and it blew out a little. So there's a little on one of the S's, there's a little blow out of ink. So I just want her to turn that into something. So it doesn't look messy. It looks intentional. I didn't think there was such a thing as a thin skinned Greek. <laughs> well, maybe not emotionally. <laughs> Although I don't know. I think I'm pretty thin skinned. I'm pretty sensitive. Okay. Well, you did the tattoo. God bless and congratulations. That's I was so proud of myself, I tell you. Yes, yes, I'm proud of you. I mean, and I don't, you know, it's not something to be proud of necessarily, somebody getting a tattoo, but you got a tattoo and that is I something get a to be proud of. Absolutely. That's a big, big um, shift from from the Alex that we know. <laughs> I know, I was, I was texting my brothers, your sis is all gangster now. Oh my God, you're a chameleon. <laughs> See, always changing, always growing. Always changing, always growing. That's mm-hmm. the way it should be. Yeah. Okay, before we get started, if you're a new listener, please take this time to like and subscribe. Go ahead, we'll give you a sec. Why, thank you. Well, uh, that has nothing to do with today's tipsy, but I think I'll just segue into it anyway, since, uh, you know, that's what this program is all about. Okay. Let's get tipsy! Knowing that I'm a lifelong admirer of her work, friends recently gifted me with Barbara Streisand's autobiography, My Name is Barbara. I had read one or two unofficial biographies in the past, but as neither of them were actually sanctioned by Babs herself, I dug into this one immediately. In fact, I'm still digging. But already within the first few chapters, one thing has become crystal clear about the international star and EGOT winner that seems to have contributed greatly to her enormous success. You might be thinking, yeah, Einstein, her talent. But even more than talent, She seemed to possess a real understanding and acceptance of who she was at a very young age, perhaps out of necessity or maybe as a defense mechanism given her circumstances and still to be realized gorgeousness. 
But who cares? Because her instinct served her well, especially in the early years when she had little to no knowledge of the business and no contacts and had to rely on herself to get where she intended to go. And it's not as if she didn't struggle. There were plenty of struggles. But what she didn't do was go to war with herself to pretend in the face of adversity or hide from her own decisions. Rather, she lived her choices out loud, amplifying her kooky and unorthodox approach for the world to celebrate, as if she didn't care what it had to say. And although she did care, she wanted to be a star after all, she didn't worry about what she wasn't. She focused on what she was and what she knew in her heart of hearts she could be. And she went to work, not unlike Steve Jobs or other successful visionaries who, despite all odds, make an incredible, indelible impact. I'm personally marveled by her chutzpah, just as I marveled at her talent as a young boy when my mother took me to see the movie Funny Girl. I was anything but comfortable in my own skin growing up, and I fight with myself to this very day. It's not all bad. It's led me to where I am, but I do wonder if my impact would be greater had I learned in more, if, if I leaned in more to myself and learned to celebrate my own unorthodoxies. It takes a lot of courage to be different, but my tipsy is to do just that to lean into yourself and self-celebrate what is different about you because it's the differences that have the potential of making the greatest impact and because to live authentically is to truly live free and that's my hello gorgeous tipsy i love it so much and I'm going to say it, it actually does pertain to this because I did something not caring what anybody else thought. And Yaya would be particularly proud of you for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Because whenever I was feeling down because of something I wasn't, not of something I was, but what I wasn't, she would say, Pulaikimu, ale parhi mono enas esi. It means, but there's only one you. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And all of the kookiness that is mm -hmm. you. That's right. There's only That's one. Right. Embrace your weirdness. That was wonderful of, of Yaya. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe if I had a Yaya in my life then telling me the same thing, I, I would embrace, I would have embraced myself more. You know, it's important to hear that message, especially as a youngster, mm -hmm. when you're not really sure who you are and what you're going to bring to the world. You know, it's important to hear that. I have a feeling that our guest today may not have heard those words, but certainly followed a path all his own that virtually nobody else has followed. So let's get into that and meet him. Let's do. So our guest today was able to parlay a fun childhood hobby into a lifetime career. He was discovered by Cirque du Soleil and created a BMX bike act for the company. He was later commissioned to build a German wheel act, which he performed for several years on tour as the opening act in Quidam. 
These experiences led him, as he puts it, to run away with his own circus company, Cirque Mechanics. His latest theatrical production, Zephyr, a whirlwind of circus, was recognized with the prestigious Drama Desk Award nomination. He recently acquired a circus big top and produces a stunning spectacle called Cirque Mechanics Under Canvas. Please welcome the founder, creative director, producer, and machine designer of Cirque Mechanics, the inventive, the ingenious, the insightful, Chris Lashua. Well, hello. Hello, Appa. I feel like <laughs> that was kind of a reaction after that intro. Thank you. Oh, so let's hear it again, though. I need a little bit more uh, passion. Appa! There you go. <laughs> if we had some Uzo, we'd be raising it and saying, yes, this. Ooh, oh, actually, we'd no. be saying Yamas. Yamas. I'm sorry. Yamas. 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 Because it's like Yamor in Spanish. Yamor. Yeah, okay. Bilingual, too. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? So, Chris, we know you, but but our listeners may not. That would be kind of surprising if they didn't, but they may not. So, we like to start our broadcast with something we call... 10 quick questions. 10 quick questions. 10 quick questions? Yay! Are you ready for 10 quick questions? Two minutes on the clock. I'll ask you 10 questions. You give me the first answer that comes to your mind, and Alex watches the clock. Thank you. Ready? No? All right. You look ready. Okay, here we go. Number one. Chris Lashua, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Number two. Do you have a favorite contraption? I do. And it is? Uh, it is um, a an aerial um, apparatus in, in the new show Zephyr that you mentioned earlier. It's a counterbalance apparatus that lifts an aerialist by using two people sitting on the other end of a giant teeter-totter device. And it's oh, the um, Russian swing, maybe? I like the Russian swing. The Russian swing is a little bit scarier for me oh, to watch. Oh, than this particular contraption. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. Okay. We'll learn more about that. Your life is like a pizza. What is it topped with? Everything except anchovies. Ah, good answer. Before being discovered, what did you think you'd be when you grew up? Well, I was, I studied advertising and, and at university, I got a degree in marketing from Boston university. Um, but I'd always been on uh, a bicycle every waking moment. And um, I didn't, I didn't actually think that would turn into a job. Um, I thought I'd be in in uh, in advertising, and uh, and then I kind of took a right turn on that pretty quickly after I got out of school. Yeah, I have to say, it seems unimaginable. You as an ad man, you just you seem much more suited for what you're doing. It was a pretty cool environment in the office, but um, as soon as I I asked the boss man, I told him that I had an opportunity to go join a circus in China at a festival. He was like, get out of here. And if you don't come back, it's a it's a great thing. And if you do, I'll have you. So I didn't go back. Wow. Excellent. Wow. So what do, you, what do you say to youngsters who tell you that they want to be circus performers when they grow up? Uh, I, I mean, I don't I don't hear that all the time from little ones. I get that, you know, we're I've got um. I've got a, a, a program that we do with a with a, a, a circus alliance called the mentorship program that we do, and and 
um, I give them as much guidance as I can and let them know that um, that uh, there's more than one path for for all of us. Um, and uh, I had supportive parents that let me do that. So I try to be positive and encouraging. Um, and it's I'm not preaching for circus. I have three kids and none of them have gone into the circus. Um, my wife says it's because they see how hard I work and they're mm -hmm. kind of run the other way, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, it, it it's an absolutely valid and valuable uh, pursuit. And so I'm I'm encouraging if they're serious about it, then I want to help them in any, in whatever way I can. Hmm. Apparently, according to one of your sons, you have RBF resting bitch. <laughs> That's true. Is it just That's... your face? It is just my face. So you're. I don't not even. Yourself. I don't. I don't even see it myself, honestly, most of the time. But um, but yeah, that is something I've been told. Yeah, but I in the stocking picture, you kind of did. Yeah, that's a new picture. I put that, a friend of mine took that photo. It's a pretty serious picture. Um, and I got a bunch of comments. And some of them said I look like, um, um, what's his name? Hatfield from Metallica, which I thought was not a horrible compliment. Ah. It was a compliment. I don't know. If it was, right, exactly. <laughs> Have you ever lost your cookies whilst performing? So I, I listened to the podcast and I wasn't sure whether this meant, because I've heard people answer it different ways, whether you lost it like you got sick or lost it as in you lost your mind because you were upset. Um, lost so, it as if you had gotten sick. Um, so I have absolutely gotten sick while performing, um, not on stage, but during a performance where I'm on stage doing a thing and I got to leave the stage get sick and get back on stage uh, wow that has happened yeah wow yeah because you know it seems uh sick inducing vomit inducing some yeah. of the things that you do it was probably not the performance it was probably the lifestyle at the time uh, um, I, when uh... i was touring on the road it was you know 20 from the ages of about 24 to 34 or something like that my wife and i were on the road with with Cirque and it was probably after a crazy premiere party or something like that. Mm. So uh, what is a circus performer's greatest occupational hazard then? Wow. You know, what's funny is that most of the people that I know that get injured, so many of them um, have issues that have nothing to do with circus. They get them, you know, stepping off a curb or, or doing something silly. Um, that as that isn't even related to the job uh, and i'm not sure why that is i think that the um as much as people think of circus as being uh, chaos and and thrilling and daring and you know all of those things it's pretty calculated you know to do it to do it um as a profession uh like many things uh you start off slow whether you're a dancer or a gymnast i think it's true of just about anything so by the time you get to a high level, um, you have to be super focused. So most of us uh, have ailments and issues that come from our, our downtime. Mm, that makes total sense. So have you thought about an exit strategy? Um, no. Uh, I mean, as a performer, yes, right? I'm no longer performing. So um, I kind of an evolution strategy more than an exit strategy uh, because because um, I'm still really connected to it, uh, to the performance, even though I'm not on stage. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I design and, and build the apparatus with a, a, a teammate of mine. 
and um, and we get to be the first ones to play with them before we hand them off to the artists to mm. kind of bring them to life and bring them to another level. Um, so I still get to do that, um, and uh, and the exit or the evolution is really just to be able to continue to be involved in that, and then find ways to bring it to to different kinds of audiences everywhere, corporate clients or or uh, or to the theater shows that we do. And lastly, poor Alex, she's the one contraption you hardly use anymore. <laughs> what contraption is she? It, that would be my BMX bike. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get used anymore. Wow, that's sad. That <laughs> well, at least bike. it's something exciting. It's gangsta like me now. It's gangsta. It's crying in the garage, <laughs> feeling lonely and sad. It is in the garage, actually. It is dusty oh, in the Lord. garage. Nobody puts Alex in the garage. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> nobody, nobody, nobody. So, Chris, um, you actually started your career working with Cirque du Soleil, something that Alex mentioned in your bio. What was that like? Well, it was a different time for that company uh than it is now when i started it was very very small um my first uh project was a, a project in japan um and there were i don't know 50 artists which was you know big ish but that was the whole company that was the whole cast of Cirque du Soleil at the time and now they have you know a dozen shows going simultaneously around the world um, more than a dozen shows. They'll have three Christmas shows this holiday season alone, just in the States. Um, so it was a very small then. Um, the founder and the founders were all still part of the the, the shows and some of them actually on the road. Um, and uh, it was a kind of a crazy time. This, this new kind of, not new art form because it had been done in this theatrical circus had been done in, in Europe, um, single ring shows like Roncalli and Kani. Um, but this was a brand new thing um, in North America and um, it got a lot of attention, right? It was on, on all the, you know, it was on HBO the month that I had was introduced to this company. I didn't know who they were. I met them at a festival in, in China and I met the founder and he, told me about the company and everybody around was impressed that this person uh about this this person in their company i had no idea who they were what they had done and uh he told me that they were on uh, hbo and i i got home after the festival and i turned it on and i saw this presentation i was blown away um so it was a new it was a brand new thing right um and now most of us are familiar what that is um but it was an exciting time um the the company was was just the hottest thing going and uh, we were all treated like rock stars you know everywhere we went you know if you had your circus lay jacket on it would open doors and the velvet ropes would open up and all that um and it was a new and exciting um thing uh and uh, lots of attention lots of energy uh, lots of money um the, the the company was was just kind of bringing it in it was kind of printing money and they were treating the artists and um and the and the crew and the technical people really really well and of course as the companies grow they get more i don't know fiscally responsible and uh and they start to scale back and um people know more recently about the challenges that that company has faced financially um they've been bought and sold a couple of times and gone through a couple of bankruptcies and so as a result um, it's not the same kind of organization. Uh, they still do amazing work, uh, 
uh, and many of the people that were there way back in the day are still there and wow. they and they keep it uh and I have had some exchanges with them recently and they keep it real and, and that's really great um I think because it's the people that make these organizations you know that and 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 when you can keep the the spirit that was so prevalent in the early days alive it's really really important I think mm. you know one thing about the Cirque du Soleil and your work is the constant innovation that we see coming out of uh, that company and and surely Cirque Mechanics. How do you innovate? How do you make it new and fresh? And and does that require finding talent that is different and new and fresh than you've than we've seen before, or is it all in the logistics and how that's displayed? Yeah, well. I- I can only speak to my process, which which I you know absolutely learned um, watching some of their great creative people at that company. Um, the directors like Franco Dragon, who who recently passed over just over a year ago, and some other really amazingly talented people. And um, that stuff kind of you know when I was at when I was there, I was it was like a sponge, you know, I could take it all in. So some of that kind of rubs off, and and um, that idea about keeping your eyes open and your brain open to to what what is of interest to in my case to me um, because of my mechanical background my my particular bent is really much more on the the physical relationship between the mechanical and the lyrical so we build devices that that accomplish some task in the circus for instance we have aerialists that need to fly well how do we fly them well we can we can connect them to a cable and then and then lift them by hand which is interesting uh or we could connect it to a a big set of rollers and put a wheel on it like i did initially my big german wheel i built a set of rollers and put a winch connected to that so that way when i would turn in the wheel i would lift the aerialist up and down while i'd roll in the wheel and this connectedness became kind of at the for us at the heartbeat and the 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 kind of ethos the idea behind Cirque mechanics is that and so when you find something for me anyway um i think when you when you hit on something that works and in our case it was unique because we weren't just doing another knockoff of the Cirque thing right we were doing a mechanical thing and that worked and um and people reacted to it because it wasn't just another copy. It was a different thing. And uh, we kept going down that path. And that's been really exciting. Um, and and as we've grown and done more, these devices have become a bit more sophisticated. I mentioned the teeter-totter lifting device where we have a hair hang artist on one act on one end of this large um, balance device. And then two guys in the other end of it shifting their weight to create lift. Um, these devices have gotten bigger. And, um, and a little bit more, um, we've gotten more ambitious and that's really exciting. Um, but it's the same kind of premise, right? How do we, how do we solve, um, I I would say it's not a challenge, it's not a problem. It's a challenge, right? Um, how do we fly an airlist? How do we deliver? How do we launch an acrobat? You mentioned Russian swing earlier, which for, for people that don't know, it's kind of like, if you imagine a a surfboard is connected at four points to a swing set and it swings back and forth. People are standing on it. You launch them off into the air. 
Um, we built our own for um, for our um, uh, the previous show uh, was called Forty Two Feet, and it was a the- theatrical show that was based on vintage American one ring circus. And uh, we had a swing act in that show and we mechanized it because the challenge with Russian swing is if you fall off of it, the swing can come back and do some damage to you when you're lying on the floor. So the challenge was, how do we, how do we fix that? How do we solve that? And so we mounted a, um, a disc brake from a motorcycle on the rev- revolving part. So when the person in the back pushes, they have a handbrake. So if in fact someone falls, they grab the handbrake and it slows the swing down. Um, that's really unorthodox and not something that is normally done. Um, and yet it worked really well. Um, touring was difficult because of issues with taking it apart, putting it back together. But I think the idea about solving these challenges um, is something that's just been fun. And so for me, that's that's been the way we do it, right? We keep looking, you know, it. these challenges are brought to us now. In the event space, for instance, um, many times uh, clients will will come to us and they'll say like, oh, we we have a huge space and we're not going to do iMac. Uh, and so we, we we like the idea of the, the talent being able to move through the room. So we have several devices that are pedal driven platforms that allow us to put performers on them and drive them through these big event spaces. So these designs come from conversations with people like yourselves or event producers and planners. Um, and sometimes we go looking for them too, right? So sometimes people will come to us with these challenges. Sometimes we will, we will just decide, hey, you know, we solved that problem by building this device. What else could we build that is a different way of handling that? And and so that's that's the way. You know, for me, it's it's been driven by that that kind of process. Is that how you develop the water? Uh... How do, what do I call yeah. them? Water pieces, water, water contraptions. Yeah, that's exactly how if, if funny. Um, I was sitting with my, I have three now, you know, not, they're all in college. One just graduated, but um, at the time, teenage boys and my wife in the jacuzzi at home. And we were having a conversation about an event and we were talking about the, the, the challenge with these, there was a, an event coming up and there was no space and we were sitting in the pool. I was sitting kind of in a reclined position and I was like bicycling my legs. And I was like, wow, what, what, if, we, what if we took one of our pedal driven stages and put flotation under it and put it in a pool? And that was it, right? I was like immediately like, oh, that sounds really cool. And I think the, you, you asked about, you know, how do you do it? I think it's when you have any success in anything, right? You get it gives you confidence to to say to yourself, "I can do it." So when you come up with a kooky idea, which someone else might dismiss because they haven't done the building blocks that get you to the point where you think mm-hmm. and, and give you the the skills to do it, I was like, "Yeah, we can do that." So um, I I grabbed I got a floating floating fifty gallon drums and built a platform out of wood and floated it in my swimming pool. <laughs> and then I decided and figured out a way to build paddle wheels. And we built what's called the paddle ship. And we put a DJ on it. We put a performers on it. We can drive around the pedal around these hotel pools. Because as you mentioned about the water, as you know, as an event person, I mean, all these events happen. So many events happen poolside. I'm mm-hmm. in Vegas, right? So there's a pool, pools, multiple pools. And the same 
same comment every time. Oh, we're doing an event. There's just no space. We, we'd love to have your X, Y, Z performance, but there's no space. And uh, so I was like, okay, well, what if we, what if we just increase the real estate by putting some space in the middle of the pool and being able to drive it around? And, um, and it worked, you know? So um, that, that gives us the confidence to build other devices. We built after the success of the paddle ship, we had um, a friend of ours who, you know, Steve, Steve Gale, Steve and Amy with imagination mm -hmm. um, San Diego, they were, they were presenting for a big festival in Bahrain and they wanted to do aerial um, but they didn't want to do it on the beach. And we we're like, Hey, what if we, what if we do a, an aerial version of our gantry bike, which is a, a, a pedal driven truss structure that rolls over the audience on ground. Um, and so we built it and um, we basically took that paddle ship design and we scaled it up and built this 20 foot tall by 20 foot wide um, aerial truss on, on flotations with, and we used the same paddle ship paddle wheels from the, the smaller paddle ship device and we made it work. And, uh, and most of the time it works. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know, yeah. sometimes, you know, in those devices, and we've had some that just don't work the way you think they're going to work. But as these devices have gotten bigger, they've gotten more expensive. It's becoming increasingly important that you, that you don't go down the path without really understanding what you're doing when you're in the process, right? I mean, th this is one of the challenges with it, that these big companies sometimes face um, is that they, they've got a lot of money. So they can waste it. And so they right. do waste it because they don't have to, like in my case, it's my, I mean, it's my family's livelihood, right? If it doesn't work, if I spend $15,000 to build an apparatus and it doesn't work, I'm going to feel it. You know, right. these bigger companies, they don't feel it. Right. It's part of the process of the innovation is to yeah. fail, right? Yeah. You fail, yeah. fail, fail till you get it right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we just have to fail in smaller chunks so we right. can afford to keep failing, you know? And without anybody being hurt. Precisely. Well, which 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 begs the question: How do you test these contraptions out um, without an audience, without people in a ballroom milling around as you know you're pedaling? How how do you test it out? And and is there ever a sense that um, there could be an issue when you're when you're performing because of you know the inability to test with people in a large room? Uh, is there a concern always, right? There's always a concern because, um, I love what I do and I'm acutely aware of the fact that if we have one misstep mm -hmm. of, of, of any scale, even not a big misstep, it's a real, it puts a real damper on our ability to continue to do it. So, um, in, in addition to the fact that we'd never want anybody to get hurt, our, our people audience, anybody else, um, it was significantly put a, it would derail my ability to keep doing what I love. So we mm. take it very, very, very seriously. Um, and as I said earlier, when I said the devices have gotten bigger and more sophisticated, um, that has necessitated me bringing in people who know a lot more I do about uh, engineering, for instance, you know, people ask me about engineering background. They're surprised when they when they see the devices and the way they work and they're like, but you don't have an engineering degree. Um, and I don't, um, I, I mechanically kind of, it's the bicycle thing. I took them apart, put them back together in different ways, you know, and then we start to build devices out of those things that looked a little different, but they functioned similarly. And, and as we got, as they got bigger, we had to bring in people who were 
better. You know, their weld. My welding is horrible. It's ugly and it's probably not safe. Um, so now we have uh, shops where we bring in the gear. I get to do a lot of the fabrication still because it's pretty particular and it's unique and it's not the kind of thing that exists. You can't, most of the things that we have, you can't buy off the shelf. Um, and so I still do a lot of the fabrication, but then I hand the serious stuff over to the people who are much better at it, more capable than I am. Um, so on the technical side, that's become increasingly important, but I think it's also the experience level, right? It's like with anything else, you start small. Um, we, we, we tested out how, um, a, a tall tricycle would work just in the street you know, in near the warehouse. Um, and we turn it and try to tip it over with somebody on top of it. And we push ourselves um, to to try to build in that little safety factor. So when we actually get in a ballroom and we have, you know, the drunk guy, you know, falling in front of you, right? As you're riding down the aisle, that you've got a way to react and you got to plan for that, right? I mean, just like in the, just like in, in any world, right? Um, if you're, you're planning the event, you have to have all these kinds of things, these contingency plans built in. Um, and we have the same thing in our little piece of that event. We have a contingency built into almost everything that we're doing, whether it's whether the aisle is blocked or the the, the decor uh, is is hanging down lower than it was supposed to because they didn't think about the fact that the 20 foot tall device is going to roll through the space. Um, we have to kind of plan for that. And, you know, and we we plan for it. On the front side too, right? You know, we we've got tech riders and we've we we got we communicate with the with the, our partners to make sure that we don't get in a situation where we have to uh make changes on site, but sometimes it happens, you know. What about the training? You know, you you mentioned that uh you get to play with the contraptions first, which I assume is you know, working the contraptions out and making sure that they work. But then there's the other side of that, right? You're not going to be performing on the contraption. Somebody else is going to be. So tell us about the training process. Yeah. And and, and it, we'll start there. Tell us about yeah. the training. Yeah. Process. So it, it it um so yes, um the devices, um I I love it. So I get to do it first because I because yeah, I built it and I paid for it. So you know, I get to go first. Um but uh, almost <laughs> immediately, the room. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, like, I mean, that, I mean, that that's a straight up honest answer, right? Is that like, right. hey, I get to go first. And I have guys that are like, you know, the, the thing about being in Vegas is we have access to the most talented pool of acrobats and artists, uh, probably anywhere in terms of the quantity of people doing the kind of work that we do, right? And these artists are bored in their nine to five jobs or their, well, their 6 p.m. to midnight jobs on mm -hmm. the strip. Board. Doing the same thing every night. Doing the show for 10 years, the same thing. Right. So whenever we build an apparatus, um, usually sometimes like when we built the Russian Swing, I reached out to some people that were coaches for Cirque and artists and acrobats. And I said, hey, I'm building this apparatus. It's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. And we're going to go to a crash mat. You want to come over to the shop and play around with it with me. And I get no shortage of people. Right? I have 20 people. Um, we had 20 people coming over the, the workshop, you know, when we started playing with Russian Swing because they were at high level. I mean, these are the people that do the, the biggest moves um, acrobatically. And uh, so we get to use them and we get to to pick their brains and ask them for input. Uh, and, and they're generous and really um, giving of both the time and the intellect, which is incredibly amazing. And I'm super grateful for that kind of those kinds of contributions um and 
And so we bring these people in that are of uh, that are that that know the the apparatus. They have to modify and they have to start slow. And so the how. Um, in in the case of something like Russian swing, you can you can use safety lines, right? Like ropes with a with a belt, um, and so we will do that. Uh, and crash mats, and we had you know like twenty crash mats all layered on top of each other all along. You know a big a big row with mats at the end. It looked like a you know some kind of big, um, I don't know a big big uh, pile of of mattresses. You know to keep people safe. Um, but you go slow like anything else. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, the key is is um, bringing in the right people like it is in in everything that anybody accomplishes of any magnitude, right? It's a, it's a group effort. Uh, it's a collaboration. Um, in our case, um, it usually starts with myself or my design partner or my uh, co-director and choreographer. We've had the same five-person team since we created our first theatrical show, Birdhouse Factory, in 2004. We all come from circus and theater and we have a scenic designing design partner and having the trust and the collaboration of those people has been instrumental to our growth. Uh, and we find the people. So the, the, the other part of the training thing is you got to find the right people. And you, you mentioned this earlier when you talk about like, you know, building any of this, you know, how do you, how do we find the inspiration and how do we find the people? Um, and um and in a lot of ways, now people find us because we've been doing it a long time and we've been designing things that are a little bit different. And so we have no shortage of people that are that are interested in in supporting that. And um, and we we help each other. Right. So um, we give them an opportunity to maybe to to shake off the cobwebs and do something different because they're bored in their day job. Or um, we find somebody who's a gymnast who has a specific skill set that we know could be translated to that apparatus. And then we we work amongst our team. And if we don't have the resources, um, as I said, it it's um it's pretty we've got a great ability to find those people right here. Um and that helps us to be able to do um a lot of things. And as we talked about earlier with the the progress, right? You know, we had some success with doing this thing. And so the next time some apparatus or some idea comes up that we have no idea how to do, um, the fact that we've figured out the last time, uh, we, we give it a try. And um, like everything else, on some level, these kooky ideas uh, really become real um, only when you speak them out loud the first time, right? Because then you're, you've, you've, you've said it. It's kind of like setting goals, right? You could, you could think about stuff, but until you actually say it out loud or tell somebody, um, it, it's not real. Um, and so sometimes the craziest ideas will say them out loud uh, or will, or I'll tell them to my, any one of the people that, that are kind of on the team. And then, then it it's real because then they, you know, and I might throw it off just offhandedly. And then like, Two days later, they'll be like, so what, when are we going to start building that thing? And I'm like, oh, man, wow. I wasn't sure that I was serious about that, but I guess I am, right? <laughs> and and that's the whole thing about the collaboration, right? Is that we, it's not a silo, right? I mean, I get to be the the the, the front person on all this stuff, but um, but I'll throw an idea out there and then somebody else will jump on it and come back with some, I'll, I'll get drawings from my, my buddy Riley, who's a, my design partner. I'll say something offhanded and then the next day there'll be some drawings and I'll be like, wow. Right. Like, and you know how that is, right. When you, yeah. when you work in a team and you, you know, you feed off each other and um, yeah. Have you ever, 
Have you ever, because I, I was curious about the whole uh, uh, engineering of it and not have, not being an, an engineer yourself, but being able to come up with this. Have you ever had anybody look at you and say, this one isn't possible? Um, so yeah, the people, the engineers will say it's not possible. They will say, oh, it's going to require... 300 foot pounds of torque to do X, Y, and Z. And, but my lucky for me, my design partner, his name is Sean Riley and he's madly talented scenic and rigging designer. He's done some of the biggest aerial dance presentations on the planet. He solves all these kinds of challenges. And so he will sometimes, and it's usually, he won't say that's impossible. He'll say like, let's, I know what you want to accomplish. So let's look at finding a different way to do it. Um, and yeah, there's some times where it's like, that's not going to happen. But it's pretty <laughs> rare. It's pretty rare we get a no, right? Because, you know, and sometimes it comes from somewhere else. Someone, Somebody will say, oh, I see you're building this big windmill. Can you have somebody grab onto the sails and fly around? And we've already gone there in the creative process and said, if we built it this way, for it to be light enough, for it to be strong enough, whatever we we kind of have to. There's there are always concessions, right? So there's mm -hmm. on some level there's is usually not a, a hard no. Usually it's a well you can do it, but if you do want to do that, then you have to make these changes, and then you have we have to decide is that concession worth it? Is is getting the yes at the expense that we're going to have the things that we're going to have to give up? Is it worth doing? So. Yeah. I, so I have to ask, it feels like the, the elephant in the room question, and I apologize for that, but we are such a litigious society here in America. Yes. So uh, talk to me about liability. And is that an issue for you that you come up against uh, clients who want to use you, but are just too afraid? Yeah. So I think that um, it's absolutely an issue. And I would say this is this isn't just for us right now in the past year and a half. Las Vegas has gotten increasingly, um, I don't know, careful, protective. Um, many of the big, you know, PSAV and Encore now have contracts with most of the rooms in Vegas. And Encore and PSAV, their stipulations right now. All right. Thanks so much. We're going to stop right there for right now. But please tune in for part two with our interview with Chris Lashua of Cirque Mechanic dropping tomorrow. Hey, thank you for listening to Bolotified. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe. And remember to leave us your questions or comments at bolotta.com backslash podcast. Bolotified is a production of Bolotta Entertainment. Hey, that's a lot of Bolotta. Stay engaging.